Welcome to episode number 70 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode, we'll be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it, and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin. I am the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. And our guest this week is Yehel Velasquez from the Patreon-funded YouTube channel Wrestling With Gaming. Yehel's here today to talk to us about the making of Perfect Dark, the Nintendo 64 game made by Rare as the follow-up to its smash hit Goldeneye, as well as the people who made it happen. Uh, Yehel, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I didn't realize I was going to be uh, referred to as an expert. Uh, <laughs> such a high bar to live up to. No pressure. No, you are you are officially an expert. We are the authority. We're we're, we're the experts on expertise. I guess. Yeah. You this say. is where this is where people come to be knighted. As yes. 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 I think we're allowed to to stamp that right. Like we're right. allowed okay. to to pass that on to people. Yeah. Did anyone tell us we're historians? Uh no, and it no. took me a long took me a long time to be comfortable saying I was a historian too. Very I don't know about silly. you. It was true as of your first video. Thanks. Um, I agree. <laughs> so yeah, hell, this is um sort of the spiritual sequel, I guess, to Goldeneye. But uh, yeah, why wasn't there a literal sequel? Um, the, the answer to that does tend to change a little bit based on who you speak with, but generally speaking, it comes down to the rights holders for the James Bond uh, IP. Uh, you know. They saw the success of Goldeneye, the numbers it, it moved, and these <laughs> the, the the rights holders for James Bond uh, are I don't know they're very peculiar folks, and uh, they sought to get uh, more money. Uh, they didn't have a multi-year deal set up with Nintendo or Rare to you know make multiple games. It was just just for Goldeneye. So the the rights for the sequel kind of up for sale, so to speak. Um, if you talk to Ken Lobb from Nintendo of America, who was the liaison from Nintendo to Rare, you know, he'll and tell the inspiration you, for the Clob gun in Goldeneye. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, he'll tell you that basically they were going to, depending on which interview of his you read, he'll either tell you that the rights holders uh, wanted so much that Rare wasn't going to be able to uh, compete with them, or that uh, Rare wasn't... Um, it was a combination of that, and Rare wasn't that interested in doing a Bond sequel. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing, besides just the amount of money that was being uh, that that they were going to be outbid, supposedly also the rights holder had set a minimum that was already too high or higher than Rare would have wanted. Uh, Rare and Nintendo would have wanted. So, you know, it's kind of one of those things where they did just do some preliminary um, looking into it. Like they they read the script, they for the next bond film um so they kind of did a little bit of their due diligence but it just came down to hey this is going to be expensive we don't really want to do it and nintendo was kind of like okay if you don't want to do it you don't want to do it and nintendo didn't want to pursue it further so what do they want to do instead if they're they're saying no to goldeneye but still coming off of you know obviously a very successful right. game well, you know, the, the folks at Rare, the, the GoldenEye team, you know, Rare back then, you know, they were kind of split into these teams that tended to stick together and work on similar projects. And they just wanted to do something different that was their own. Uh, in particular, with the folks that had worked on GoldenEye, they were big sci-fi fans, so they wanted to do that. They wanted to have freedom to do things that you just can't do in the in the Bond universe. You know, you can't have aliens running around you know or sci-fi elements running around 
uh, if you're making a Bond game. So they just didn't want to be restricted and just actually do something based on the things that influenced them. Right. And so what what would those be? I mean, if 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 they're, you know, sort of giving creative freedom to to make a GoldenEye like game with sure. whatever premises they, they want to play with. I mean, what is it that sort of influencing them at the time? What What is it? What, what's the sure, kind of world so, they want to play around in? So it, it's a lot of sci fi stuff, a lot of stuff uh, like X-Files, Blade Runner, um, one of the uh, B. Jones, one of the people who worked on on GoldenEye and Perfect Dark, uh, was big friends with Richard Biggs, who ended up uh, he was an actor that played a doctor on Babylon Five, which was another big influence for them. And he ended up getting his face uh, in the game, <laughs> or a character based on his face, I should say. Um, so yeah, it, it was stuff like that. Um, uh, Ghost in the Shell was another big influence for the actual design too of Joanna Dark and some of the stuff that she wears but uh you know it's not like they didn't want to do it's not like they didn't want to do a first person shooter or didn't want to do uh you know some kind of spy-esque character but you know they they just wanted to have more freedom to make it really just more sci-fi-ish basically is yeah. what it comes down to you know and a little bit more out there a little bit more x-files too i guess because mm-hmm. i mean we're, yep. we're, we're, yeah, we're, another... we're in the exact x-files time and uh that's yep. you know character like elvis the alien in perfect mm-hmm. dark i mean that's well not that there's a character like that in in uh in uh <laughs> in the x-files but right that was just one of the weird monster of the week episodes it wasn't one of the plot <laughs> ones so you know. but but you know there was still like those uh you know gray alien conspiracies running all throughout sure. x-files and oh yeah that's that true at that time we're still getting like the sort of like ufo close encounters kind of shows right and, right, yeah. right yeah yeah so let's talk about like what Perfect Dark is real quick, just for anyone who hasn't played the game. I mean, what what is it like? What is the kind of game that they end up making? Well, you know, it's both, for me at least, both very similar to GoldenEye and completely different. You know, you have... Um, I Actually, let, let, let me backtrack a little bit because, you know, I think GoldenEye, the way people most re- remember, at least most fondly, is because of multiplayer, right? Um, and even though I personally prefer Perfect Dark as a game, I think it's the better game. I have fond, more fond memories of GoldenEye from playing multiplayer with my friends and that kind of stuff. But the multiplayer in Perfect Dark, it has a lot more options. You have, you have the Sims that you can play with. There's a lot more play modes. Um, so, you know, it's really like GoldenEye kind of on steroids. Um, and, and, and I mean that in terms of options, because there's some drawbacks, you know, there's, they they added additional things like improved lighting, improved shadow effects, and all this stuff that they added. Just uh, you can really tell that there's a hit in the frame rate uh, when you play Perfect Dark versus Goldeneye. And Goldeneye's frame rate, it's not like it's anything to write home about per se mm-hmm. either, you know. So and it can get pretty bad in Perfect Dark, especially if you choose to play in the high res mode. Um, so <laughs> I would say uh, you know Perfect Dark, it, it's it's a it's a first person shooter that concentrates. I, I feel more on story than Goldeneye. It's more intricate. You have some twists and turns, some really nice reveals. Uh, you know, you've got some people that kind of switch sides that are bad guys and like ha- have a little bit of redemption towards the end. Um, so yeah, to me, perfect. Oh, and the voice acting uh, mm-hmm. all throughout Perfect Dark. So to me, Perfect Dark is just Goldeneye, the, the next level of the Goldeneye engine. And just with more intricate storytelling, you can tell that they could 
re, because they it was their own IP, they could do more with it. They really did do more with it, especially from storyline perspective. So where's this weird title come from? Um, <laughs> so the weird title, uh, I, I was kind of disappointed when I learned about this because I always thought, I was the Man. opposite of disappointed. I, like, oh, too, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> really? Oh, it's a funny story, but I don't know. I just thought it was like, I always thought this is such a cool title. Perfect dark. And like, it's got to have like, like all this deep meaning and all this stuff, you know, something really well thought out. No, nah, they just took a bunch of words that they thought would sound cool to go together through made like a random word generator. Uh, I believe it had something like 200 words in it. And uh, this is perfect. Dark was one of the combinations that it spit out and they would put the words up like on a wall uh, whenever they had, you know, a combination of words that they thought might be interesting. And, you know, basically they'd have it up on this wall for a few days. And if people didn't hate it after a few days, okay, we'll consider it that one. And uh, this one ended up being the one that, uh, stuck though it wasn't the um, perfect dark wasn't the original name. I mean, it had a um, another name before that. Now is escaping me. I think it was Alien. Oh my god, what was it? I'm looking through my own notes here. <laughs> um, but uh, it had, but but it was more of just like a, a code name until they came up with the the, the regular name of it. It wasn't like a working title. It was clearly a project title. I, I, I don't right, recall right. it either, but it was like alien project. <laughs> it was like it wasn't yeah, 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 yeah. Alien conspiracy. But I think that's a great way to title a video game. I think so too. Yeah, and I don't yeah. I don't know if you were able to dig up it or if anyone had even mentioned like other titles considered, like other titles that made it up onto that whiteboard for more than a day or two. But so I looked into that and I I, I mean if you know of some Great, but it seems like a lot of them were kind of forgettable from the impression I got from what Doke has said and a few other people. So it, it reminds me of something very not video games. It's 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 a comic book title. Um, so in the eighties, there was this uh, series that Marvel did that's not very good. Um, that was <laughs> essentially made to sell toys. It was a tie-in to Toy Line, and they called it Secret Wars. And it was oh, yeah, basically yeah. there was market research done on like what words like boys responded to when they bought toys and it was like war <laughs> and secrets that are just like secret wars. <laughs> like, it's still a good title. It doesn't yeah, make yeah, any a great sense. Title. Yeah. Yeah. And I think now there's even going to be like a Disney plus series. Based oh, on probably. Yeah, yeah. I believe I read. Why not? Maybe, Dig maybe that up too. I mean, if they haven't yet, <laughs> that is absolutely inevitable. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So, Perfect Dark, I would imagine, begets our uh, protagonist, Joanna Dark. So tell us about her. Yeah, sure. So uh, Joanna Dark, um, a lot of people think that she's based on Joan of Arc, but uh, uh, David Doak kind of um, squashed that later on. It was kind of more of a retrofit kind of a thing where, you know, Joanna Dark just sounded like a cool name to go along with the with the motif of Perfect Dark. And it just coincidentally sounds like Joan of Arc, right? And I, you know, I guess you could say there's some similarities, right? She's a strong heroine um, and that kind of a thing. But, um, you know, one of the things that Rare wanted to do with Joanna was kind of make her differentiate a little bit, differentiate her from some other protagonists that, you know, were around at the time or, the, or that you might see, you know, in the near future in games. You know, they didn't want her to just be you know, um, a character that, oh, well, she's female, so we have to, like, really make her super sexy or this and that. You know, they wanted her to have her own personality, 
Um, you can you can see in the, in the script that they wrote the way she responds to people. You know, this is a very strong-willed person. Um, and they they also thought, and you know, I wouldn't have thought that this was as important, but they they did was to make her visually more well-rounded. They didn't want her to just to be in the same like outfit the whole time. Uh, so just to, another way to like show her personality um, and that kind of thing. And that's where you can see some of those influence, influences from like Ghost in the Shell uh, and like her leathery outfit, um, or I'm sorry, her main costume. And then the leather outfit was more like uh, Mrs. Peel from the Avengers. Uh, and it's funny, like the dragon dress, like they literally, it, like if you play Killer Instinct in the Tiger Shrine stage, there's these banners with like a dragon and it's literally like what her dress is. It's just like the dragons from there. <laughs> just stitched together just that flag. just sewed the banner around herself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. Maybe Joanna's a big uh, Killer Instinct fan, I don't know. Uh, and then her face was modeled after Winona Ryder, which uh, when you see the you know, I mean, it's an N64 face, so we're not talking about super detailed or anything. But when you see them side by side, you can definitely uh, see the influences. Mm, influence, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that that will be the word that we use. But uh, <laughs> so, yeah, full full cast of characters. Um, obviously, they they hire uh, a bunch of tremendous voice talent from uh, from Hollywood to come and voice this game, right? Um, well, I think that's what Nintendo thought was going to happen or wanted to happen, but no, no, um, you know, Rare did the voices in-house, which Rare tended to do everything in-house, especially at the time. Um, not only is it just kind of part of their, what was their culture, you know, uh, but also it's cheaper, (laughs) right? Um, so yeah, they would just pull whoever was available to do, um, voice acting in terms for Joanna, it was... Um, one of the, um, people that worked in there as a composer for Rare, Evelyn, I always mess up this last name, Novakovic, Novakovic, I'm not really sure. Uh, but she was the voice of Joanna and, you know, not, she's not really a voice actor by trade, uh, but I thought she did a good job. Uh, and then some of the other, uh, actors are just, some, some came from the Rare team, uh, themselves, um, and others were just like, Hey, you're walking around, you're free. What are you doing? Great. Come in, come into the booth. You got 20 minutes, you know, re- record these voices. So yeah, man, which it, it's kind of crazy, right? Like you can't imagine that happening today, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a while since I've played Perfect Dark and I've, I've never beaten it, but I don't like when I hear something like that, I'm like, oh man, the voice acting must be really bad, but I don't remember it being like noticeably amateur, you know, like, yeah. It, they yeah it's for whatever reason seem to at least i mean i don't know who directed the voice actors but maybe they just had a really good like director get you know giving yeah, them good yeah. uh good feedback and stuff but it's yeah i don't blame them for doing it in house it actually <laughs> turned out pretty well yeah it's it's definitely not bad i mean i wouldn't say it's on the level of obviously i was listening to a lot of uh the voice acting while i was putting this video together i wouldn't say it's like on the level of something you'd like see you know today certainly not from like a triple a studio but at no point does it feel like it's not like resident evil bad or anything near that bad you know (laughs) (laughs) it's very serviceable uh some of the actors are better than others but no one like is cringy outside of you know maybe a few like small characters that literally will say a line or two here or there 
I got some words about Elvis's voice, but uh, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll save that for another show. I have no idea what that show could possibly. Yeah, be. what is what is that show where we critique Elvis's voice? I don't it's know. It's divisive. Well, it's divisive. You know. <laughs> and all they did was like there was a guy and that worked for Rare. He was not part of the gold of the Golden Eye or Perfect Dark team or anything like that. And he was known, I guess, for doing like a Yoda impression. So. Mm-hmm. Yoda voice. So basically, he would just for Elvis did a Yoda voice, and then they just pitch shifted it uh, a little bit higher, and that's okay. Elvis's voice. All right, I guess you can do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People like Yoda. That that works. I don't know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I, I mean, that gives us a little bit of insight into just the sort of development environment here. It seemed like, I mean despite working with Nintendo on this, they were given like a pretty yeah. long leash and like pretty yeah. lax rules on um, on working yeah. on this game. I mean, can you just talk a little bit more about what the development environment was like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, basically, you're 100% right. And it was pretty similar with GoldenEye too. Uh, they were given a lot of leeway, not a lot of hard deadlines, um, and they were kind of, for the most part, left to their own vices. So, um, you know, Rare had the, uh, for, for Perfect Dark, there were kind of like two teams that ended up working on it because about half the team left after the first year of development, uh, including the uh, team lead that was working on it. And he had wanted to just kind of create an environment where, hey, if you have an idea, and you think it's a good idea, you don't need to go ask permission to start working on it or start implementing it. You can just do it. And so unfortunately, what ended up happening was, you know, rare, well, fortunately for us, maybe not so fortunate for, I don't know, uh, other people, I'm sure in management, you know, they started off with, we're just going to take GoldenEye's engine, maybe make a couple of small changes to it. And we should be able to turn around a game in within a year, easy. You know, whereas GoldenEye took almost three years. And is this essentially the GoldenEye team? Like, is it? Yeah, is yeah. It at, at the beginning, at the beginning, it's yeah. pretty much just the GoldenEye team. And uh, well, as they start to get more ambitious with what they want to add and the improvements that they want to make, you know, next thing you know, it's a year into it, and they're nowhere near near done. You know, and Perfect Dark ends up taking about three years, also. The myth um, of the game engine. This is a classic story in game development is the myth that, oh, we already did it. We have all the right. pieces. Just reskin it. It never works. It's never right. worked. It right. didn't even work in like the 80s when games were really simple. It just, it never works anymore. Come on. Right, come on, right. Especially, especially when you want to like have it have all these new features. So I don't know. They just kept <laughs> at it, adding uh, stuff to it. But Martin Hollis, he was the original uh, team lead. And, uh, you know, he just said, yeah, whatever you want to do, whatever you think is cool, you don't need permission to do it. Just start working on it. And these people were working on it on GoldenEye. You know, we're talking about like 80 plus hour weeks were like not unusual. Um, One thing I left out of the video is I think I left out of the video is that uh, B. Jones, who was a character artist and also did one of the voices for one of the characters. uh, B. Jones ended up clocking in something like 6,000 hours of overtime uh, on Perfect Dark. And they said that they were on the lower end of the overtime list. No. You know, so yeah, you want to talk about some crunch, right? Um, And yeah, 
I don't even remember what the original question was uh, about. Uh, <laughs> Describing <laughs> the about in, uh, development environment, which I think you oh, yeah, have, the uh, environment. You so, have illustrated. You know, <laughs> it was one of those things where they had a lot of freedom. But, you know, when you look at the the people that ended up leaving the team, uh, you know, I already mentioned Martin Hollis. He's the original guy. He was the team lead on GoldenEye, you know, the head of it. He ends up leaving. Uh, David so, Doe. Well, hang on. So why why does he leave? I mean, he's in the middle of a project. Right. Like so literally the middle of a huge AAA project that everyone's like crunching on. So a couple of things. First, his four year contract with uh, Rare was coming up. Uh, they wanted him to sign on for another four years. And Hollis wanted to finish Perfect Dark, but he didn't want to sign a four year contract. And he felt like he was going to be stuck just creating FPS after FPS. Like he was kind of like, this is what you do now kind mm -hmm. of a thing. And, you know, he had his own ambitions and he was also burnt out by working these long weeks. He didn't have any personal time. Um, and Rare, for whatever reason, the Stampers wouldn't let him just stay on to finish Perfect Dark. It was, you do this four-year contract or nothing. So he ends up leaving. And then a few months after that, uh, Dr. David Doak, who same, you know, he's like one of the scientists in the uh, GoldenEye game, uh, he ends up leaving. He was one of the programmers and did a few other things. Steve Ellis uh, leaves. Their lead artist, Carl Hilton, leaves. And Graham Norgett, who did uh, a lot of the music for GoldenEye, uh, he ends up leaving. Uh, and they went and they formed Free Radical Design, uh, minus Where Martin they Hollis. they never had to make a shooter again. That's right. <laughs> but Martin Hollis didn't go with them to create uh, oh, Free Radical okay, Design. Okay. So uh, Martin Hollis <laughs> went to, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he next went to work at Nintendo and he served as a consultant uh, with the GameCube development, I believe. Okay. Um, so he did do something pretty different, at least at first. So, yeah. So, I mean, the, the that was basically half the team. Well, it's not just that. So you said it was like project lead, tech lead, art lead, right. and sound lead. Right, right. I it's mean, basically <laughs> the guys I, in charge, right? Like... You, you mentioned this in the video, sort of, but it's like, how does this project not just get canceled at this point? Like, that's right? a death sentence for a project. So, like, what happens when everybody leaves? How do they get this back up off the ground? It, it's crazy, right? Because, I mean, if that happens today, you're, you're definitely... Get, I mean, and even back then, you know, chances are you're, you're, you're getting your project canceled, right? Um, but, um, they ended up, Rare ended up just pulling people from, uh, other Rare teams. Um, they ended up increasing. So obviously you can tell the Stampers believed in this project. Uh, the Stamper brothers obviously were the owners of Rare at the time. Um, and they end up bringing in a bunch of other people from Rare teams. Uh, if I remember correctly, Rare's, uh, Perfect Dark's team ended up being uh, something like three times the size of GoldenEye's team by the time that they had, you know, brought in people from other departments and hired a few additional people. And I think part of the reason why they didn't cancel it is because uh, Mark Edmonds, who had worked on GoldenEye before, they promoted him to team lead on Perfect Dark, and he had worked a lot on the technical aspects of the GoldenEye engine and now the Perfect Dark's revamped engine. Um, and so it's not like they were starting at square one per se. And because, you know, Hollis had created this team where everybody is, I don't want to say fully autonomous, but they had a lot of autonomy. You know, they were already kind of working on these things. So it's not like 
it's it's not like uh, Martin Hollis was the only guy or like David David Doke is the only guy that knows how to do X thing or that. So I think it's a combination of that, believing in the project and just by coincidence, because um, I believe they pulled some people from like the banjo team uh, that had just become available. So they had some staff that they could like pull into it. So they must have crunched some numbers, right? And said, well, <laughs> we're this we're far in. everything here. <laughs> So yeah, they had a revamp team and and they went, just went right to work. So something that um, I'm a little confused by, is there Nintendo involvement here outside of just sort of being the, you know, the platform maker and, and possibly some funding maybe? Because this, this is a game published by mm-hmm. Rare, right? Yeah. So Nintendo is involved in the sense that Ken Lobb was again, kind of the liaison for Perfect Dark uh, from Nintendo. Um, and you know, so Ken would, he he would give them, you you know, notes from Nintendo and that kind of thing. But Nintendo again is not, was not concerned so much about giving them hard deadlines until it got close to the end. There was this sort of, um, I know we're getting a little bit ahead here, but there was a sort of feeling of, uh uh-oh, GameCube's around the corner. Uh, we need to, you know, get this done soon because this console is nearing end of life. People are already like seeing uh, newer, the next generation of consoles already being advertised. They already have release dates in some cases. Uh, And in fact, uh, one thing I had left out is that even before those four, uh, those people left to go form Free Radical Design, they already had a GameCube, uh, a very preliminary GameCube development kit like already at the rare offices. Mm. So it was like, well, this is coming. So we need to get this out if we're going to plan on, you know, even really being able to sell or have this be some something that people are interested in. Um, so, but, but Nintendo for the most part was very hands off. And, you know, part of it, uh, and this is an assumption I'm making, this isn't something that I was able to confirm via any research, but Nintendo's not paying for the James Bond license here, right? Because it was Nintendo who had the the, paid for the license for James Bond. So they don't have as much skin in the game per se with Perfect Dark as they did. There isn't like this big financial commitment uh, from Nintendo at this point. So I, I think that that's part of it too. I also believe that it always seemed like even after that one year where they're not, they don't have the game, you know, as close to finish as they thought, it still probably seemed to them like, oh, this isn't going to take that much longer because even at the end of that year, they had a lot of the stuff already like done in terms of basic um, ideas for levels. They already knew the story they were going to do. They knew the types of levels, where they were going to do them. So they had the game designed on paper, so to speak, already. It was a matter of actually now getting to work, creating the assets, you know, recording the mocap, you know, doing that kind of stuff. So again, you can see how it might seem, hey, this isn't going to take that much longer, you know, but then even then once they started continuing the development under Mark Edmonds as a team lead, they just kept adding stuff, you know? Um, and then they of course end up with the problem of they added so much stuff that now this game won't run on a stock Nintendo 64. I don't know if you have any, any insight into this, but what's with, there's only three games on the Nintendo 64 that require the expansion pack. Mm -hmm. They're Majora's Mask, which came out in 2000, um, there's Donkey Kong 64, which is a rare game, and there's Perfect Dark, which is a rare game, and they're both, you know, I think Donkey Kong 64 is like late 99, and then Perfect Dark is yeah. 2000, right? So like, are they are they 
bad at optimizing or are they just like <laughs> the most ambitious company working on the 64? Like which, <laughs> I don't know if you have any well, insight into that, but I'm just like, what's up with Rare? <laughs> so at least in terms of Perfect Dark, they always from the beginning knew that it could be an issue getting it to run uh, on a regular Nintendo 64. For those that don't know, the Nintendo 64 development kit has more RAM than uh, the consumer Nintendo 64, right? So they can get it to run in their on their dev kits fine, no problem. Um, but they assumed that they would be able to optimize it uh, by the time you know it came around to you know get 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 it finally out, and they'd be fine. And to be fair, they kind of had to do that with Goldeneye. It was the same thing with Goldeneye at first. It was like too big to run, too much memory, and they got that to run. So they're thinking, okay, we can we can get this to run. But then there came a point where it was like, oh no, we we've done too much. Uh, but if you hear Ken Lobb talk about it, Nintendo of America wasn't really too upset about this because they're looking at it as a way to maybe get some expansion packs, you know, uh, sold out there or at least get them in more people's home. I believe the expansion pack came with um, the Donkey Kong game that required it, right? Yeah, it uh, did. And then you could buy it separately. Right. So they're looking at, okay, this is going to be a way for us to sell more expansion packs. Uh, I, I don't... You know, when you look at the sales figures, you know, two million sold by for Perfect Dark versus eight million with Goldeneye. I feel like the expansion pack was a big, you know, deterrent for for people. I mean, there's other factors too, right? It's not James Bond. It's the end of the console's life. Blah blah blah. But well, and I yeah. I think to you know my my take on it, Kelsey, is that this is the kind of studio that was always pushing hardware and 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 the mm -hmm. possibilities of what's on there and and um, the fact that that's kind of was the culture from the beginning of that company. Um, and in addition, we're talking two first party games and then with perfect dark, basically a first party game, <laughs> you know? So I, I think, I think it's a combination of those two things where it's like, we want to, and they'll let us and, and uh, yeah, but it's, it's also like, yeah, it's another game dev trapping, right? Like we can just use the same engine and we can optimize it later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, they game dev never changes. Yeah, I mean, when you read interviews with these, uh, with everyone that worked on Perfect Dark, they all thought until about halfway through, this would be fine. Well, we're going to be able to get this to, to work on a regular uh, N64. And Ken Lobb uh, is one of the people that didn't think they were going to be able to. But again, he's like, He's he's on the he's there as a Nintendo employee. He's like, oh sure, go ahead, no problem. Keep adding stuff, you know. <laughs> we got a warehouse full of this crap. <laughs> no one's buying these confusing and expensive hardware yeah. add-ons that yeah. are not necessary for like most of our games. So why would you buy it? It's exactly. really weird. It's it's the kind of thing that feels very like PC like, but. Mm -hmm. on a nintendo 64 which is just confusing it's i mean it's literally like an upgrade to the ram right like that's yeah it's literally just more ram yeah yeah, yeah. so that's i don't know that's a it's a very pc feeling thing that mm -hmm. I hadn't i don't know it feels strange to do on a console and feels it, this isn't everyone's feeling about you know playing a console over pc but i feel like in many cases, it's like, well, this is just a way simpler way to play video games. I don't have to think about right, optimization right. or whether things work or not. And then Nintendo's like, except when you do, because yeah. we have some games that don't work without this optimization. Well, and it's it's kind of interesting to me, too, because the solution to that in the past was to put more memory on the cartridge. You know, right. on the NES right. and the Super right. Nintendo, I believe. Yeah, yeah, as as the hardware 
evolved because it's a cartridge. You put whatever you want in there. So like right. usually that cost was just built into the game, but for it to be the separate accessory, just I, I agree with you. It, 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 I can see like Sony or Microsoft doing that today. I can't see Nintendo doing that ever. And especially not in the nineties. Yeah. I, I think it's clear, clear that Nintendo thought they were going to sell more expansion packs than, than they did, you know, uh did they improve other games i don't know that's a genuine they, they did yeah okay. um yeah. i know just off the top of my head like one or one or two of the star wars games like it's it's little things it's none of it's yeah. huge but it does improve some other like games text- yeah, yeah you, you'll get like improved textures occasionally right. or something like that or a better slightly better frame rate um on a few games but nothing Nothing major, but uh, yeah, I, you know, you got to think that Nintendo thought they were going to sell way more of these, right? And that they were like, okay, well, you know, in the long run to consumers, it'll be more, I, I'm assuming that they were thinking it'll be cheaper for the consumer, right? If they just buy one expansion pack rather than like continuously mm-hmm. buying super expensive games that have, you know, extra RAM or whatever on them. Um, but yeah, that didn't quite work out that way <laughs> at all. <laughs> And, you know, there's people like that have commented on uh, my Perfect Dark video that they didn't know that there was like a whole other like because if you play Perfect Dark without the expansion pack, you can play it, but you can't play the campaign. You get like a limited version of the multiplayer, uh, the menu for it's even called the small but perfect menu or something like that. And anyways, I had these people commenting as some of them that they didn't even know until they watched the video that there was like a campaign or oh all this God. other stuff because uh, they never had expansion back. And I'm like, I don't like how dumb are you? Because on the box makes it very clear. I got to say. Yeah, people yeah, don't read boxes box. though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. And if they had the box, maybe they were just renting it. Um, yeah. Something like that. Um, yeah. I did just remember though that the expansion pack has one more thing that it's required for, which is the 64 DD. So that might be sort of mm. where this line of thinking came from. Is and they were probably still... why they had a bunch of them. I'm exactly. Guessing, yeah. They were, that, they were very close to that being a real thing here. Yeah. That yeah, was planned to go out in the U S like very seriously. So, um, yeah. Mystery I... solved. That is canon. It's <laughs> 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 yeah, full of these because yeah. of the 64 DD and something like that. And lob was excited to move them. That is, that is <laughs> exactly what happened. Um, so there was a, there was a cut feature from this game. Uh, so at one point, um players could photograph themselves mm-hmm. to photo map their faces onto characters and that always goes well and is a good feature yeah yeah you never see anybody use it in any kind of nefarious way <laughs> or as a way to bully someone or threaten them uh it's it's a great idea it always works well but uh, it, it it is something that was cut out of the journey arcade game in like 82 or something for this exact oh, really? reason oh yeah yeah so so journey <laughs> based on the band journey um wow there's an arcade game and, and it features their faces on sprites, the, the band members. And I think during testing, like they had a feature or maybe it was just planned um, to uh, to photograph yourself as, as like the gimmick in the game and like play as yourself. <laughs> but uh, people abused it for in really obvious ways right. that would be actually very funny. <laughs> now that yeah, I'm yeah. that, I must admit, but yeah, not a good idea. Yeah, and you know, like this is a game. Even though, like, a Perfect Dark, uh, I believe it was rated mature, but um, it, uh, which you know, that might have also hurt its sales, you know, sure. um, compared to to, uh, to GoldenEye. But uh, yeah, so the the feature for for the face mapping thing, it was pretty much done. Like it, like it's in a, several like magazines of the time. Like they have screenshots of it, 
uh, being used. There's a promotional video uh, that Rare had at the time that even like showed it off. So, I mean, it was pretty much done. But yeah, Nintendo was afraid of people misusing it. Um, this isn't too far removed from, uh, you know, Columbine. So that was another concern, obviously. So I, I get why they didn't put it in. I mean, it, so- it sounds cool, but... And I don't know. But honestly, those game, the Game Boy camera pictures, I mean, they're not... <laughs> it's cool though that they had like another way to use you know your game boy camera for something else you know but um i don't know man you need now you need a game boy camera an expansion pack (laughs) (laughs) yeah you are adding a lot of pieces to this yeah i also like i mean you you mentioned that um maybe they didn't let people put their own faces in it but they rare put a lot of like their own like they really liked putting their own stamps on things it seemed like they put a lot of the faces from people in the studio in mm-hmm. there and then like celebrities and um, yeah. apparently even Miyamoto which I I didn't realize which is yeah yeah that's funny. crazy right um yeah and they they even had a contest at uh E3 before uh Perfect Dark uh you know was released where you could um I think you had to like answer some trivia or something. Anyways, they they ended up choosing like just like two people, two regular people to photograph and photograph them right then and there. And they're in the game too as, you know, like random guards or whatever. Um, But yeah, mostly in-house, which, you know, that's what they did with Goldeneye uh, as well. Uh, And the cool thing is if you like look through the Perfect Dark like ROM, you can still see like some faces from Goldeneye that weren't used in Perfect Dark that they're just like, the data is just there, you know? So not good at optimizing what was on the card, I guess. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, we, we know how it was made, but uh, how did it turn out? How was it? Um, well, I mean, it was very, very well reviewed. Um, you know, e- even to this day, the the only complaint that you hear, see really people have about it is the frame rate, uh, which again, I, I get it. The frame rate, it's not great, but to me, I don't know for an N64 game it's you, you know it, it's more than the sum of its parts right this game everything else about it is so good that at least for me it's easy to like kind of ignore the frame rate occasionally slipping under 15 frames per second you know um and I don't know maybe it's because I had a real crappy computer at the time and I wasn't used to a good frame rate or whatever you know and now this is what I'm used to <laughs> this is just what games uh, look like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah I, I mean it, it was uh very well received um one thing that's a little different about perfect dark sales versus goldeneye is you know goldeneye had this like very slow climb initially with in terms of its sales didn't sell super great but then eventually a year after or so after its release it's selling like gangbusters you know through word of mouth people rent a blockbuster they fall in love with the multiplayer keep playing it uh perfect dark sold well initially like like you would expect a game to do when it's released but then it didn't have that continued um sales growth that you saw with with goldeneye so like i mentioned earlier goldeneye sold 8 million copies perfect dark around 2 million so pretty substantial difference uh in sales and it was advertised you know as being from the makers of uh you know goldeneye that was very very heavily pushed in print and tv ads uh but it wasn't enough to uh to to get people to to buy it so so when did it come out like 2000 uh yeah it was released uh may uh of 2000 so um, i mean like it doesn't really even have the chance to get that like year of 
of growth that something like a golden eye would not that you know they would strike in the same way twice yeah. but it's like now nah, future's coming baby <laughs> like yeah the, yeah the gamecube was released the following year yeah. uh playstation 2 was gonna it came out five months uh if my memory is correct after perfect dark dreamcast is already out like we're moving right. on yeah you, you got a 32x baby what else do you need uh... <laughs> <laughs> so i mean it's a it's probably a better game in like almost every respect. Um, but you said something towards right. the end of your video that I liked, which is uh, that it was uh, evolutionary and not revolutionary. And that's kind right. of why people don't uh, like remember it as fondly or care about right. it as much these days. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. You know, when GoldenEye came out on N64, like not that it was the first FPS on a console or anything like that, but it was one of the, it was the first one that a lot to a lot of people like they kind of felt like okay they got it right like this is like a fun FPS to play on a console you know it doesn't feel super cumbersome um the multiplayer was like mind blowing to to me and my friends like it was just everything about it was just like so fun right you had never really seen so, a, a complete package on a console the way GoldenEye was and then Perfect Dark comes along and Oh, you have a lot more weapon options. That's nice. I mean, I had weapons in Goldeneye. Uh, oh, the lighting's better. You know, you get some like nice uh, lighting effects and better shadows. But eh, whatever. I mean, that that's a nice improvement. But a lot of the but it, but you know, to the average person, they're just like, oh, this is like a little bit better looking. Um, there's more options, but eh, it's not like as impressive as Goldeneye because it's just not like that. Wow, I didn't think the N64 could do this. You know, kind of a thing. So, unfortunately, I think that that's probably why a lot of people didn't try it as well, and why a lot of people just don't remember it uh, as fondly. And you know, to an extent, I can understand that. You know, that that's human nature, right? I, I think like if you look into Perfect Dark and you like study it and you see all the things that they did to improve it, it's just as impressive to me that they managed to get it to run, albeit with an expansion pack, uh, as well as it does run on the uh, N64, but. I, it's, I, I don't think it has any chance of ever being remembered as fondly as GoldenEye. But in a lot of ways, it does kind of seem to be like, you know, the swan song for the system, even though it's not literally true, I'm sure. But it's mm -hmm. it, it does seem to be like the, okay, we're just throwing everything we can at this system before we yeah. bow out. Like, it's that kind of game. And I mean, like you can choose the resolution it runs in at, at the expense of yeah. frame. That's weird. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, now to be fair, like uh, Goldeneye had like a 16.9 mode as well. I don't believe uh, it's been so long since I've played it now and did my video on it. I don't think it had like a high res mode. Um, I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but uh, yeah, and then like choosing like high res textures at, you know, like you said, like just taking a hit to the frame rate, which already wasn't great. Uh, but you know, like those are like really cool options. Um, the the co-op uh, the ability to do co-op and counter co-op where you're playing as the enemies throughout the game. You know, if you're player two and you're trying to stop Joanna Dark from like completing her missions, uh, like just like really creative stuff where like, you know, even today you don't see a lot of this stuff, you know? Yeah. So um, I don't know. Some, something we like to ask our guests as we wrap up here too, is um, to just talk about the research a little bit. I mean, you sure. had a ton of, uh, references to interviews and stuff in there, some magazines and stuff. Um, I mean, you obviously like this game. You wanted to do a documentary right. about it, but where do you start with something like that? 
Well, thankfully for Perfect Dark, I would say it was one of the easiest <laughs> uh, games I've had to research just because there was a lot uh, of information out there on it. Uh, I, it was actually easier to research than GoldenEye, which is kind of surprising because you would think that there'd be more out there on it. But I found a lot more interviews and I was initially going to reach out to uh, Dr to david doke himself because after the golden eye video he very graciously like reached out to me because he liked it and uh so i was like 16 year old me was like fanboying about that uh but uh and then I, I ended up gathering so much information i'm like i don't really have anything here that i can't have clarified by the 30 interviews these people all did each <laughs> uh and rare replay did a um uh a bit on uh like a mini 10 15 minute kind of mini doc on it. It wasn't super comprehensive, but there was some additional stuff in there that uh, kind of filled in the gaps of stuff, stuff, some stuff that they hadn't covered it in interviews. Uh, and sort Is of, that where the, the, the interview clips came from? In your yeah, opinion? yeah, yeah, yeah. From the uh, Rare Replay uh, documentaries. And like they did one on GoldenEye too, but I don't think it's on the actual Rare Replay, but somebody somehow got it and leaked it out on the internet. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so. what they did that for. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, for, for this one, uh, Kelsey, I mostly went through, uh, I, well, I went through every interview they have, I, I believe, ever done on it. Uh, and then I also like to, whenever it's like a really old game like this, which I mean, it's mostly what I cover, right? Really old stuff. But I like to go back to see what interviews they did uh, with magazines uh, during the era uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I want to see was there, if there's any discrepancies between what they're saying now and then, yeah. uh, then I'll say, okay, I need to reach out to somebody to try and get this clarified. And if I can't reach somebody, you know, I'll tend to like, you know, uh, add that caveat in the video. But also, I tend to go with whatever they said originally at the time, because you know, as you know, how memory is, you know, and uh, you talk about a game for twenty something plus years, you know, you, what you say about it might change over time, and it's human tendency to embellish some stuff and that kind of thing. So. Uh, I tend to err on the side of like whatever they said originally, uh, but uh, they, they were all surprisingly consistent with everything. Uh, to be honest, the only guy who really kind of <laughs> contradicted himself was Ken Lobb from the Nintendo of America. And if you like ever watch the guy talk, he's a character. He's very animated, very this. He's a storyteller. Uh, he's not a liar. He's a storyteller. And he just likes to like exaggerate things from time to time. You can tell. But yeah, for the research, I mean, it was honestly very easy. This was not a hard one. It wasn't like I had to dig through, you know, the dredges of archive.org to see some website from like 1996 at the, you know, uh, early of the internet or like I have to go to a library, a physical library this time or anything like that or, or order, you know, magazines from Japan and pay somebody to translate them. So I didn't have to do any of that stuff uh, this time. So it was very, very easy to be. But fun. it sounds like you have. Uh, yes, yeah. I have done these these terrible <laughs> things. Both hands, all of us. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really it's great the handful of times that um, you know companies actually interviewed enough and wrote down enough. And, and Rare was really good at this. I mean, they had yeah. um, on their their old website they would do like uh, just kind of blog posts and mini interviews. I think they called it something like the rare hot seat or something like that, where they just interview each other basically and get some, mm -hmm. uh, get some interesting stuff out there. And they, they, they've been doing that like pretty consistently, at least since the nineties. And that's, I mean, that's huge. Cause most people, I mean, the biggest 
hurdle, one of the biggest hurdles we run into um, in researching is just that like most people throughout their entire career just treated this like a job and not like right. someone might actually care what's going on behind the scenes or yeah. might care down yeah. the line. And that's fair. <laughs> but And even the people that were passionate about it and didn't look at it as just their job, a lot of them didn't think, oh, someone's going to care about this 20, 30 years later, you know? Right. So they didn't save stuff or document things very well. Um, what, what I was going to say, Kelsey, was just, uh, I'm sure you guys have had to do stuff like this too. Uh, when I was doing my Game Shark video, I, by happenstance, so like Daytel had like a bunch of like, and Interact had like a bunch of like different offices in the US. And it was real weird. They had like all these like businesses set up under different names. And it, it was like very weird and kind of shading these, all these like little sub companies. And they would keep, basically keep reselling the, the Game Shark slash action replay under a bunch of different names. Uh, so it was weird. But anyways, I was trying to get some information and one of their main offices was in Lake Mary, Florida. And I found a library that seemed to have some information uh, based on what I could search on the library's website, but they didn't have the actual documents like available to you on the website. And I'm like, well, I live about two hours away mm. uh, from this place. I'm like, and I was like, ah, it's, it's probably isn't going to be anything. Like I shouldn't, I shouldn't bother. And then like, you know, as days go by, you're just like, oh, I'm going to hate myself if I don't like go mm -hmm. check this out. So I drove two hours. I had to like apply for a library membership there or they wouldn't let me look at the stuff. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I, I, and it ended up being useful uh, to add some context to some of their weird business stuff that they were doing. But uh, yeah, like stuff like that, like it's it's a pain in the ass to do, right? You'd much rather like be able to just like Google everything, but it's a lot more rewarding, right? When you have to like do something like that, you know, uncover something that isn't just out there for just anybody could look up. So it's fun in the long run. Well, my dream job is to only do that and then never produce anything with the information. Well, right, because you're because you're missing something. You're yeah. always well that too, something. but also I just I don't like the making the content part. I like the mm. learning. And it's yeah, like, me too. I just want to tell people about it. I don't want to like. <laughs> <laughs> just want to make a Twitter thread and be done. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I, I get that. <laughs> I can understand. I can understand. There, there's definitely been some times where I'm like just writing a script. I'm like, oh, I I love all the information I have. Like, I, even with Perfect Dark, I had like eight pages, eight to, eight to 10 pages of just notes before I even started writing the script. I'm like, oh, I love that I have all this information. I don't want to write it into like a narrative now. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yes, I do. But, but Kelsey, I'm sure like once, you know, you're done with your videos and you put out the final product, I'm sure you're always like happy that you did it. And, and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I... <laughs> it's, it's just because I never feel like it's actually done. Yeah. Like there's always yeah. more, I mean, especially looking back at uh, several of them now, it's like, well, these people didn't respond to interviews back then, but I was younger and wasn't as good at asking for interviews or like finding mm -hmm. that, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it, the work never feels done. <laughs> yeah. I, I know what you, I, I, I've had, I, you guys have probably had this happen, you know, with various things you've done where maybe you'll do a project or maybe you'll write up like, uh, like you guys have your blog posts that you'll write up, uh, you know, about various different things in gaming history. You'll write something up. Maybe you reached out to somebody about it. They didn't reply to you and you know, you have the right contact information for them. Yeah. Then they read or see your video. Oh yeah. Now suddenly they want to like, they liked it. So now they want to give you information and it's like, it's, it's over buddy. Like I can't go back in. That happened to us. Um, we've worked extremely hard on 
um, publishing content around a, a, a an unreleased game. It's called Power Up Baseball, and it was uh, the Major League Baseball sequel to NBA Jam made by Midway in arcades. Um, and uh, well, essentially made by incredible technology for Midway, but that's that's being pedantic. Uh, and uh, I had reached out to the game's designer uh, while trying to put this together because we had the game like we were able to rebuild it from mm-hmm. source code and get it working and emulated it and everything. And I'd reached out to the designer and uh, did not get a reply. And uh, I believe it was within 20 minutes of the article going up that he emailed me and was like hey i'd be happy to talk about this game i mean like it's still cool because like you know he's, he's a he's a really sure. good guy and 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 we went out and met him and everything and 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 cool. uh, started a really nice relationship actually with incredible technologies have been really great to us they they um donated uh actually kelsey you helped me unpack the magazines right like they donated oh, yeah. they donated like 20 years of of uh, oh, rare wow. coin op trade magazines that that everyone else threw away and stuff like that. So, but but yeah, and exactly it, right. It's like an article goes up and it's just like, hey, here I am. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's funny how that works. Uh, but you know, um, what are you gonna do, right? Like it happened to me on the when I covered the Super Nintendo uh banking system from Tran Direct that they were making to do making on your Super Nintendo. I spent weeks like reaching out to people and I know I had the right information for these guys. Uh, and I emailed like 13 or 14 people. Uh, a few of them I contacted on LinkedIn. Like I was like a stalker, right? Uh, Cause there just wasn't a lot of information out on, on, on this stuff. And sure enough, like a few days, uh, like a week maybe after the video was out, suddenly, hey, saw the video. I'd love to sit down and talk to you about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kelsey, this happened to you recently with with uh, with with a hardware thing that you had wrapped a video on, and uh, did what's I don't know. I mean, should I just say it? it yeah, with with the, with the Gluco boy. Oh, um, it wasn't immediate, but it's like you you were very done with the Gluco boy, and then one showed up. Yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> and that was. I mean, it's a little different because I had um, what happened was someone who actually owned a gluco boy reached out to me and it's hard to like you know there's no way for me to find a list of people who purchased it so it's not like i reached out to people and didn't hear back it's just that someone who who owned one finally you know saw the video and connected it but um yeah so i interviewed him and i don't know have to do some sort of follow-up i've also interviewed like five other people who worked on the game since then and it's not the story doesn't really change much it's just kind of interesting additional information right to have that extra context and yeah and, it, and it's and it's tough right because you want to present as comprehensive of a story as possible too but like you said if it doesn't change the story or really add anything other than you know here's a little bit of context to this or like you know some real minor stuff like it's like is it worth it do will people want to read it will they care you know and you have to like decide okay is this worth my time um is it worth my audience's time you know, mm. you know, because after a while you develop like a loyal audience and, you know, they don't want to feel like you're rehashing like, you know, content for the sake of clicks, even though all you're trying to do really is tell a more comprehensive story. So, yeah, I uh, I, I get the frustrations and, and where you're coming from. But uh, I would assume, though, that you guys, uh, you know, as you've become, especially over the last year and a half or two, you guys have become a lot more well-known and established. And, you know, I, I think like within the retro like gaming community as far as like the the 
gamers or whatever uh, stuff, like non-industry people. Like I, you guys have always been well-respected, but I would assume that now you guys are seeing more and more um, developers uh, be open to sharing information with you and that kind of a thing. Because uh, you guys have a really good and well-known reputation now. Thank you. Thank you Thanks. so much for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I think so, but it's it's hard to tell if... Um, Okay, actually, let's put it like I, I I'm more surprised uh, than not when I'm often surprised when when people are like, oh yeah, I heard of you, love your work, you know, when I'm when I'm talking to like someone who was in the industry long ago, and it's not it's not a huge amount, but um, I mean, you you kind of you kind of you kind of grasped onto a core concept of of the whole point of the foundation honestly which is that like you know i had been doing this independently for like at that point like 15 years or something like that um mm -hmm. you know kelsey as well and it's like not uh, for 15 years not for 15 no um <laughs> you were young for that um <laughs> fifth grade reports on, on oh, yeah. or whatever. um but you know the i i just felt that like there needs to be just this very strong entity, not just like, oh, you should talk to this guy, right? Like it sure. should be like, it should come with a strong entity that people have heard of. And um, a lot of what we do really is just like, I think of it as like carnival barking, right? We're just like screaming our name out into the, mm -hmm. into the world just to make sure people know who we are. And, and a lot of that is for that sort of like, brain trust like i want when we when we reach out to people i want them to have at least vaguely heard of us so it's like sure. oh those guys those are legit and so i can i can trust them with with uh with my time if not my my resources so yeah i think i think that's correct that's cool it's cool it's cool to hear uh that your guys hard work is is paying off and uh it's you know it's it's kind of similar in the, in the youtube game too where like when you first start off uh Nobody knows who you are. Like, mm -hmm. why would they interview? You know, I feel really bad for these, for like smaller channels that, cause you know, I, I was there too. Uh, I just like, after like six years, I started in yeah, like almost six years, you just now hit a hundred K. So like, it was like a slog for me for like a while. And I feel bad for these channels that, you know, they're like maybe a thousand subs and they're putting out great stuff, but yeah, nobody will talk to them. Cause it's like, eh, you know, you're putting out, you, you only have a thousand subscribers, you know? Um, you know, your videos get, you know, a few hundred views, so they won't, you know, have access to. Well, how, how do you persist, though, and, and keep going? Like, because, I mean, you were there. Well, I'll tell you what I did. When I, when I went to do the X-Band video, um, where I interviewed, like, all of the developers that had actually worked on it, and these guys that worked on this stuff, I mean, they're, I, I don't think it's a secret, they're filthy rich, right? Uh, <laughs> like, they had worked in um, Silicon Valley for a long time, a lot of them have patents and things that went into like WebOS and, and other things. Um, part of what they did with, uh, I, I didn't mention this in the video, but part of the IP protocol they created for X-Band ended up being used in the first iPhone. Um, mm. So the, the, these guys have a very high pedigree. So what I ended up doing was, I mean, I was fortunate that I knew, I met somebody who was trying to revive X-Band that knew one guy uh, or knew a couple of the guys that were had worked on the original uh, software and hardware. And so he got me their information and they were at least willing to listen to what I had to say. So what I did was I put together basically like as 
highly uh, well-produced, like kind of a mini trailer of what I wanted to do for their documentary. And they saw like, okay, this is somebody who's going to put in the time to editing. There'll be good production value. Mm. So that's kind of how I was able to get uh, one of them to be interviewed with me, to interview with me. And then after he interviewed with me, he, uh, you know, he saw it wasn't like a hack or something or whatever. And then he put me in contact with everybody else. Yeah. Uh, But if it wasn't for that, like I... You know, or rather, I should say, he let everybody know who I had reached out to know, hey, it's okay to interview with this guy. He's not going to waste your time. You know, he's putting together something professional. And um, I don't know if anybody knows this, but those guys were so excited about it. They made this giant email chain uh, that I was on with like every other Catapult employee, like those who made X-Men that you could think of. And they ended up, uh, obviously, this is like pre-pandemic. They ended up renting out a movie theater and all got together and watched it in the movie theater. And oh they invited God. me to go out in California, but I, I couldn't because of like some stuff I had going on. And I was just like, wow, that's like really cool of them, you know, that they like were into some. And a lot of them like ended up reconnecting because of the documentary. Uh, I know two of them like kind of buried the hatchet on some like wow. issues they had had. So, oh my God. Kind of, so it was super rewarding, you know. And then you hit them with the cease and desist because they weren't allowed to publish. Yeah, and, and, then I, and then and then I, I am in court. With the <laughs> that is so cool. That's such a. I mean, we we have somewhat similar moments sometimes here where just you know reuniting people with their old work and it, it is very rewarding. But yeah, we've a, reunited people with each other. Too, oh, for right? sure. And yeah. In fact, uh, nice. six days from today, we're doing that uh, at our it'll, Nintendo I Power think, event, which we can't really advertise because it'll be too late. But Yeah, it'll be over by the time this, uh, <laughs> this episode goes out, I think. <laughs> that's really cool, though. I, yeah, I mean, to me, that's one of the most rewarding things, uh, you know, and, and with the X-Band video, even like players that played on X-Band, as they find the video, they'll comment, hey, my username on X-Band was so-and-so. And inevitably, like somebody will be like, "Hey, I was so and so. I remember playing you. I used and, to like, destroy you. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a couple people have like gotten right back in the same arguments they were having in nice. 1994, oh which gosh. is hilarious. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's like really cool and, and rewarding. And obviously, though, like not every project is gonna is gonna have that happen. But it's really cool when something like that does. It's really interesting to hear that you made sort of a trailer um, to get people on board and take you seriously because um well kelsey as you know i'm considering doing essentially that exact same thing um which is that i I have a book concept that requires me talking to a lot of people who have never like who are not traditionally the kind of people who talk about Mm -hmm. their careers and games um and and most of them not most but like a lot of them are like retired or retirement age by this point and and um what what i had decided might be a a good approach and and i've only just started like conversations about this honestly it's not something i've done yet but i had the thought that like if i if i'm able to like get with a designer that would that would help me on this book because it would be fairly visual as well um and make sort of a vertical slice of it just like a Mm. good like six page sampling of what this book might look like um that you know that would probably make these conversations a lot easier because it's like look you're you're not just talking to someone who's gonna you know pop something on the internet or whatever it's like don't you want to be a part of this cool thing right right um so uh I thought I invented that, but you did it first. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm sure I didn't invent it. <laughs> yeah, well, at the time, I think I had like, 
I wasn't like super small, but I think I had like maybe 40,000 subs or something yeah. like that. And, you know, like my videos weren't like getting six figure views all the time or anything. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, these guys, like I, I, the way I saw it was like, okay, these guys are rich dudes with not a lot of time mm -hmm. on their hands. You know, I, it's not like they're going to want to get paid, but they're certainly not going to want to have their time wasted. Yeah. Um, and I was very fortunate that all those guys ended up uh, that I spoke with ended up being still very passionate about X-Men. It's like something that they like really love. So every every one of them I told, hey, I'm only going to take like 45 minutes of your time. And I spoke to each one of them over three hours. Um, Amazing. You know, wow. so yeah. Yeah, they were cool guys. Cool guys. Well, great. I mean, let's wrap it up here. Uh, Yahel, thank you so much for joining us on the Video Game History Hour. We're going to link to the video, your Patreon, etc. in the show notes. Please go check them out, everyone. But uh, for those only listening, uh, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, well, obviously on YouTube, Wrestling With Gaming. Um, and on Twitter, you can find me at WrestlesGaming. Um, I also have a podcast my buddy and I do. It's not really video game. Sometimes it's video game related, actually, but it's called Obscurity Now. And we just like review old and obscure stuff. Occasionally we'll cover like a weird FMV game that everybody hates except for me or something like that. <laughs> uh, but we, you can find us at Obscurity Now uh, wherever you get podcasts. Great. Uh, thanks again. Don't be a stranger. Yeah. Same to you guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>